Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Professor Andrekos Varnava. He is Professor of British Imperial and Colonial History in the College of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. Today, we'll be discussing his newly published book, British Cyprus and the Long Great War, 1914 to 1925. Empire, Loyalties, and Democratic Deficits, published in New York by Routledge 2020. Andrekos, it means the world to me to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you. It means the world to me as well. It's a pleasure to be with you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Well, I grew up in Melbourne. Um my parents um, were both from Cyprus. They were both born in Cyprus. My father came to Australia as an immigrant, uh, as a young man, um, around the age of uh, 18 or 19, in 1952. Um, and then um, my mother came after many years later with my dad. They had met uh, in Cyprus in 1974 during the war that occurred. And they uh, came to Australia um, and later got married. And um, I came along um, in 1979. Um, I grew up um, always, as far as I can remember anyway, having a passion for history, um, particularly the two world wars. Um, Part of that was, I suppose, facilitated by watching a lot of old movies, um, which I think is a good way of, you know, getting into history. And I just pursued history once I went to university and immediately fell in love with the study of history and made a decision to try to pursue it all the way. Uh, Obviously, one that doesn't mean that one will succeed, um, uh, but I'm I'm thankful that I have uh, succeeded in um, in getting to where I am. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? So the the, the origins of the book, um, I suppose, are that it partly is a continuation of my first book, which was my based on my PhD, British Imperialism in Cyprus, 1878 to 1915. And when I originally started the PhD, I thought that I would, I I, I didn't know that I would stop at 1915 and I had hoped that I wouldn't, but I later realized that that was too much. So I ended up stopping at 1915, which seemed a logical break uh, with the failed British offer to cede Cyprus to Greece. And then it was always in my mind to write this next book, um, looking at more generally the role of Cyprus during the First World War and the experiences of the Cypriots as part of the British Empire. Um, But before I 
did this book, I discovered the Cypriot Mule Corps and decided to do a themed book on the Cypriot Mule Corps and all of the elements, I suppose, of that story. So I took a break from this book, from writing this book that we're going to talk about. Um, and the themes of, of this book really are, as the subtitle suggests, or as the, well, the title suggests as well, that I'm not just talking about the war that finishes in inverted commas in 1918, but I'm interested in pursuing this idea that others have also talked about, that there is this long uh, great war that follows after the armistice um and there 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 is a, a you know hot side to it and then there's there's also the cold side to this um that continues particularly in, in the context of the ottoman and former ottoman worlds um but what i'm trying to convey is that the 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 experiences of colonial societies need to be studied uh, the experiences during the the war. And I suppose I'm really interested in this question of loyalties and, you know, complicating that, the question of loyalties. And on the other hand, looking at this idea of democratic deficit within a colonial setting and how this is something that is, on the one hand, in, inherent within colonial societies, but also we see um, because of the because of the nature of British control and rule and governance. But also we're seeing, in, particularly in this context, how the Cypriots are so, uh, the Greek Cypriots are so fixated with one idea that they, um, really it's to the detriment of their own development, uh, political development. What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell? So each, each chapter, um, Apart from the first one, I suppose, um, tries to tries to tell a, a story, and then I try to bring this together uh, later on. So I'm trying to tell the story of World War One in Cyprus and the contribution of the Cypriots through different lenses. The first chapter, or the second, well, the second chapter, but the first chapter that does this is one that looks at the elites the educated classes, the political classes. And that chapter looks at how, for instance, they were fixated on union of Cyprus with Greece, known as Enosis, um, as well as how they became subsumed to, you know, at, at certain level, at a certain level with what is going on in Greece and the schism that was occurring in Greece between the pro-entente prime minister Eleftherios Venizelos and the, the, the king and other royalists who were pro-German but wanted Greece to remain neutral. Um, but for the British and French, this, there was always this sense of uh, a neutrality that was tending to be pro-German. And how this um, is, can be understood within the context of what is going on in the war. The, 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 the other chapter then looks at middle-class loyalties, particularly focused on British military intelligence and what this tells us about these loyalties. So loyalties is, is at the heart of the book. The, the following chapter looks at the lower classes who were primarily the ones who had come forward and enlisted in the Cypriot Mule Corps as auxiliaries driving 
mules in Macedonia primarily. And then we look at how the war impacts upon Cyprus, particularly in the context of refugees that are uh, coming to Cyprus and how they are received um, by both the government, the authorities more generally, but also the local population. And then we look at the strategic uh, dimension, the strategic importance of Cyprus, another, which is a theme that continues from my first book, and why the British decided to retain Cyprus at the end of the war, having offered it to Greece during the war, and you know the important debates that occurred um, that underpin, I suppose, that decision, as well as the broader context of the empire and what's going on there. And and finally, I return to the I try to bring it together, I suppose, in in this last chapter to some extent. Um, when I look at um, Enosis again in the, in the period from 1921 to 25, when Cyprus actually becomes a crown colony, where the British actually say, well, you know, we annexed Cyprus in 1914 when the Ottomans joined the war on the side of the Central Powers. We offered it. It was rejected. Now, you know, after the war, we've decided to keep it. And in 1925, we make it a crown colony. So that that's a statement that they're there to, that they want to stay. Um, and I put that into context and look at how the Cypriots, particularly the Greek Cypriots, are reacting to these developments and the democratic deficit that basically sort of results from this. What does your book contribute to the history and historiography of Enosis? Yeah, so en Enosis is, you know, I suppose... A one of the central um, subjects in the book. And one of the things I've tried to do in my writing, in my research, is to not, I suppose, ignore the fact that Enosis was, was important to the educated Greek Cypriot classes, but at the same time to critique it uh, um, as a, you know, realistic policy, particularly because it was a policy, an idea that failed, right? And when a when when something fails, we need to evaluate why it failed. And this book does that. Um, it it doesn't um, it 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 doesn't question that Enosis was popular amongst the educated classes. It questions that the, any idea that it was popular amongst other classes. Um, it, it is beginning to, I suppose, influence some, some in the middle classes, but still we don't see this as, you know, being um, as popular as it is for the educated classes. And it's certainly not really there in terms of the lower classes. The, the majority of Cypriots lived in rural areas. They were peasants and or rural laborers so we need to look at their history as far as we as as, as far as possible um, and what we what we see is that enosis is not um the same it doesn't have the same meaning for different classes so this is another element of the book that i, I really go back and break down society along um, a sort of uh, class lines 
to show that NOCs um, meant different things and uh, for different classes. Can you offer a brief history of Cyprus between the Greek War of Independence and World War One? Yes. Yes. Um, so the first chapter looks at basically the period of my first book um, and the subtitle of the chapter, The Consequential Possession, is taken from that book. But I, I, I do add, it's not simply a summary of that book. I do add m more here than, than I did uh, in that earlier book, and that's partly connected to the fact that I've developed, you know, as a historian since publishing that book in 2009. Um, so I talk about some of the same themes and, you know, um, identity and nationalism and so forth. But I also talk talk about um, how the British um, managed through their policies to uh, create better uh, health conditions. This resulted, one reason why it results in increasing the population. And this, of course, has consequences for, for society by the by the eve of the First World War, um, so I think that chapter is 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 necessary to set the background to um, what's happening and what has happened um, in Cyprus by the start of the war. And and one of those things that doesn't get talked about a lot is the fact that by by around 1912 we're beginning to see Cypriots emigrating. Uh, to non-traditional places. I mean, traditionally, they, they're, they're emigrating to Egypt, they're emigrating to Syria, Anatolia. These places are very close to Cyprus, and, and you know, they can go back to Cyprus relatively uh, easily. However, by 1912, we're seeing Cypriots emigrating to Western Europe, but also North and South America. And this is a result of the two things. One is they're being pushed out of Cyprus because the population has increased and there aren't uh, the opportunities there to sustain them, but also they're being pulled because of the opportunities for work in those other places. Can you tell us about the history and lived experiences of Armenian refugees in Cyprus, as well as Ottoman Greek refugees in Cyprus? Yeah, so this is the subject of, of one of the chapters where I look at the refugees. I look at um, so there were there were three broadly speaking groups of refugees: the White Russian, the Armenian, and the Ottoman Greek that settled in Cyprus. They were, you know, as a consequence of um, conflicts. And this, this feeds into the idea of the Long Great War. They were conflicts, I suppose, that start after the war, but sort of are rooted in conditions of the war itself. Um, so probably out of those groups, the most, I mean, in the end, not many of the white Russians ended up staying in Cyprus and they the vast majority ended up being moved to the Balkans. The Armenians uh, were being expelled after the war. Those that survived the genocide were promised that they could return to their homes. They would come. They were supposed to come under French control, 
uh, in and around Cilicia, in southeastern Anatolia, and other, and sort of further north as well. But they're but they're being expelled by uh, Turkish nationalists, Kemalist forces, and they make their way to Cyprus. They're actually quite a sizable community. Um, they were primarily folk who were uh, skilled um, in, you know, they, they could open their own businesses. Um, it, very quickly, they also, for example, uh, form the Melconian Institute as a school that evolves into um, attracting Armenians from various parts of the Middle East. We, we probably know more about the Armenians than we do about the Ottoman Greeks who become to some extent subsumed into society because of their names. Um, you can distinguish an Armenian in Cyprus by their name. Uh, it's a lot harder to do that in, uh, for Ottoman Greeks. So it was a little bit more speculative, the research on the Ottoman Greeks, but there's no doubt that they were uh, more, let's say, welcomed by the elites and they were pressuring for more uh, to be allowed in, uh, partly because, of course, this would alter the demographic dynamics uh, in their favour because the census censuses that were occurring would, would basically be counting the population according to their religion. Uh, so they, you know, the elites wanted more Ottoman Greeks to be coming here. Of course, they too were expelled by Kemalist forces um, as a result of the, um, as the Greeks call it, the Asia Minor catastrophe and the Turks call it the Turkish War of Independence. Uh, I think it's fair to say that all of these groups actually settled really easily as, you know, maybe a little bit of, uh, maybe some issues at the beginning, but as time, uh, tra uh, you know, moved on, they they integrated really, really easily into society. Can you elaborate on the experiences of white Russian refugees in Cyprus? How was their experience of emigration and resettlement similar to and different from Armenian refugees and Ottoman Greek refugees in Cyprus? Yeah, so... There were around 1,500 white Russians who were in Cyprus at, um, in, in, as they were leaving the conflict um, during the Russian Civil War. Most of them were in, a, were in camp. Some of them were allowed, a couple of hundred were allowed to leave the camp and establish themselves in, in different parts of, of the island. Most of these people managed to either get a job or start a business. Many of the people we're talking about, for example, were had a medical career, so they opened up a, a clinic. M many also wanted to leave, and that and that was fine. Um, at some stage, however, the British wanted to, and they, you know, to basically rid themselves of the liability of caring for the refugees in the camp. There were several efforts to remove them. Eventually, after a few uh, 
failed attempts, they managed to um, have them finally removed to the Balkans. And initially, they wanted all of them to leave, including the ones who had established themselves outside of the camp. However, there was support amongst the Cypriots for them to stay. And eventually, after they petitioned, they and eventually after they also signed guarantees that they wouldn't be a liability on the government, there were around 100 or so who were given permission to stay in Cyprus. And some of these people were you know, made important contributions to Cypriot society, doctors, engineers, and others, teachers. Um, and like I said, they integrated relatively well into Cypriot society. Um, and also we know, you know, in during the interwar period, some, some were also able to bring their families from elsewhere there and, and you know, to Cyprus. And eventually they took out, um, you know, Cypriot, British, whatever, citizenship as well, nationality. What is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of World War I? So the contribution that is that this is one of the first books that looks at colonial societies during the Great War. Um, there's so much more work that needs to be done particularly in, in other parts of the British Empire. Um, the, often the British Empire in the Mediterranean and Middle East is, is neglected. So that's another contribution that part of what I do is to bring to the table the, um, the British Empire in the Mediterranean and that we should not be excluding it from our understandings of British imperial history. The contribution of the Cypriots is, is another important thing and this complication of the idea of loyalties. Um, and also that, you know, we, we, we see a lot of work on the British Empire and we, we, a lot of talk about resistance or nationalism or, or conflict, but often we, we lose sight of the different sections of society that are, you know, partaking in empire. Um, in one way or another. And, you know, and some of that is actually, well, the opportunities that present themselves. Um, and this complicates the idea of loyalties, I, I feel. Um, you know, the Cypriots who served in the British forces in the First World War uh, mostly were not, you know, opposed to the, to the war or opposed to the British position. Uh, and probably were mostly indifferent, um, but took the opportunity to serve because it meant a stable and really good salary by comparison to what they could earn in Cyprus. But if they were opposed to the British and opposed to the war, they probably wouldn't have served. Um, you know, although they were promised that they wouldn't be in harm's way, they were in harm's way, and many of them died around 180. So what I'm bringing with this book is I'm trying to situate um, colonial societies and their contributions and experiences in the Great War uh, to the history of the British Empire and trying to amalgamate what sometimes might appear to be separate histories of World War I and Empire.
can you tell us about Antonio's Triantafilides? Yes. Why is he a person of consequence? Yeah, so Antonio Triantafilides is the subject of my follow-up book, a uh, small book, um, and that focuses more on his assassination in 1934. But he enters the scene during the First World War as a young man who has graduated from law in Athens and he comes back to Cyprus and he immediately um, steps into the political fray. Obviously, as a young man, he is you know, if you like, several rungs below many others who have been involved for years, but he he quickly makes an impact and he becomes involved in politics. He is in favour of union with Greece, so he is in the pro-Enosis camp. He is critical of the old uh, guard who, during this period, um, but he's also beginning to, I think, realise that to achieve enosis, the British need to be on side. They need to be convinced. And I think this is something that remains with him throughout his, I mean, short life, because um, it's cut short with his assassination. What, what role he plays during this period is mostly behind the scenes. And at one stage... It appears that he has the um, respect and ear of the of the high commissioner slash governor, who proposes to him a solution to break what is a deadlock in the sense that the Greek Cypriot elites have withdrawn, if you like, from participating in the representative institutions, and. It's, it's unclear, you know, if later on he talks about this as well, but it's he, he seems to be supporting of this, but doesn't seem to have the power, I suppose, or the influence to, to make it happen and the opportunity is lost. But I, I think, I mean, he, he's an important figure during this period, even though he himself is not... Um, you know, the most important figure and not um, elected, you know, to the in the legislature. Um, but he is important nonetheless behind the scenes. Can you tell us about Theophanes Theodotu? Why is he noteworthy? So he's noteworthy. He's, in fact, Triandafilidis's, well, future father-in-law. And he is one of the ones in the old guard if you like, who, who've been around for a while. And he has been um, very much in the at the forefront of supporting Enosis. Um, however, you know, the British don't seem to, you know, they on the one hand, there is, an, there is a, a kernel of respect for him. But on the other hand, there is this recognition that Theodotu um, is is the type that is unwilling to go to the you know 
to fight for enosis in in you know in that sense um so he he's a figure that the british keep at a keep at a distance they don't um he's not that he's not like triandafilidis in the sense that the british don't think that theodoto is someone who can um you know provide leadership that is practical and and logical uh, that he is um uh, if you like rather more the emotional type what were the repercussions for cyprus of the sykes pico agreement yeah so the sykes pico agreement from 1916 has several repercussions um and, as we know the sykes pico agreement was signed by the british and the french and foresaw if you like the uh partition of the ottoman empire in the middle east into different zones to you know there would be a french and, and british zones where they would be in more or less uh absolute if you like control and then there would be zones in which they would have um influence over uh, but not control and would be consisting of an arab state or states in relation to cyprus the immediate impact was that as a as a side agreement the french side agreed uh with armenian leaders to form the armenian legion or the legion d'orion which i've written about um elsewhere and basically what this meant was that uh, armenians would be trained uh, by the french in cyprus uh, at a camp in cyprus so this you know post dates the genocide and the majority well or not majority but a good proportion probably around 40% came from the united states to be part of this legion um there was a sort of you know intricate uh facilitation helped by the british to bring them to to cyprus to be trained and they served in the french forces limited as they were in the middle east in the palestine campaigns and also then as part of the french army of occupation of cilicia but they were trained in cyprus so this impacted cyprus particularly the eastern part of cyprus where the camp was now the sykes pico agreement of course did not what did not end up being implemented exactly as it was agreed to however you know some of the core principles i suppose of it were and eventually we see um certain some things abandoned other things moving forward but eventually we get to the treaty of lausanne and it's in that treaty that uh the ottoman uh, sorry turkey recognizes british sovereignty over cyprus so this is something that um is agreed is is something that the british have basically um had on the table i suppose to do much earlier and had it basically agreed with the french that they would not cede cyprus to greece without uh, to, to, an, to another party without um without french consent and that, and this moves into basically the british staying there can you tell us about proposals to establish a cypriot legion in the british army yeah so the proposals to establish a cypriot legion in the british army originate 
with uh, a fellow called Fisiensidis, who was based in Egypt. He was pro-Venizelos. He was a Venizelist. Uh, and he wanted to establish, he made a proposal to establish an, a Cypriot legion that would uh, fight on the side of the Entente. Um, however, the British were uh, totally against any proposals, any proposal like this, because they worried that it would then be used to say, well, look, we fought on your side. Now we want you to give us to Greece. Um, they also didn't really have a great deal of faith in the proposal. Um, but, you know, they, they were always sceptical about proposals like this. They were sceptical about the pro earlier propo early proposals to form a Jewish legion. Eventually they came, came on board with that. And they were also sceptical about the very early ideas to form an Armenian legion, which predate the Sykes-Picot agreement. Um, and they rejected those. The French rejected them. It was only after Sykes-Picot comes in that the French revisit the issue, the question of forming an Armenian legion. But the Cypriot one never never got off the ground. Can you tell us about Eleftherios Venizelos and his attitude towards Cyprus? So, so Venizelos was prime minister of Greece from before the war. He was a reformist prime minister uh, who basically comes to lead, though himself was not uh, really a part of, um, the overthrow, if you like, of the older political order uh, some years before the outbreak of the First World War. He comes from Crete. He was a revolutionary leader in Crete. And he implements numerous reforms in, in Greece. He never, uh, I suppose, hid the fact that he was pro-British, that he was an Anglophile. Um, he takes Greece into the Balkan Wars relatively successfully and comes out of those, you know, having significantly increased Greece's borders. Um, and he signs, as part of those, a treaty with Serbia where they will mutually come to the aid of the other if they're ever attacked. Now, when the First World War starts, um, the king of Greece, Constantine, wants to remain neutral, wants Greece to remain neutral because he's married to the Kaiser's sister. And to be honest, he also himself has, he's a Germanophile. Um, so for the, for the Entente powers, the British and the French in particular, they they always felt that Constantine, uh, Constantine's neutrality was flavoured with, you know, German, I suppose, um, you know, support or friendship. In any event, Venizelos is eventually compelled to resign. And shortly thereafter, as the situation unravels, Bulgaria enters the war. This is towards the... Uh, end of 1915, Bulgaria enters the war and invades Serbia. Uh, Cyprus is offered to Greece. The government of the king, which was pro-royalist, refuses the offer because it meant that they would have to go to war on the side of Serbia. Meanwhile, Venizelos removes himself from Athens and in 1916 establishes a second government in, in Greece in Salonika. 
And post the failure of the Gallipoli landings, the British and French forces end up going to Salonika and they begin the Macedonian front with the support of Venizelos's government. Eventually in 1917, Venizelos manages to, re to reunify Greece insofar as that occurred. Um, but officially speaking, the king abdicates, his son takes over, and Venizelos becomes prime minister of a reunited Greece. Now, his position on Cyprus is somewhat uh, uh, influenced by the British offer of 1915. He believes that the British uh, will offer Cyprus to Greece again, and therefore Cyprus does not feature highly on his list of, so to speak, if you like, demands. And he always favoured um, a position which Triandafilidis comes to agree with, that the Cypriots need to keep the British close to them. They need to engage and, um, if you like, develop their own internal uh, democratic, if you like, um, politics, and if um, slowly call for union with Greece and not become impatient and certainly not become violent. Um, and when we do see violence in 1931, Venizelos is opposed to it, uh, and he criticizes what what occurs when. There are attacks on government buildings and including the burning of government house in Nicosia. So he always favoured an approach, um, if a, a more, I suppose, constitutional approach to bringing about enosis. Who was Haji Eftichios Haji Prokopis? Can you describe his significance? Yeah, so he's a really interesting figure that hasn't been studied very much at all. He was uh, a mayor of his um, very large village in Nicosia, Leftera, and a member of uh, the Legislative Council. And he comes to the forefront, if you like, in the early 1920s, when the on the one hand, the, the, the sort of more nationalistic Greek Cypriot elites don't want to participate in representative government. And, and he is one of the figures that steps up and, and fills that void and then manages to maintain his popularity when the nationalists do re-engage in, in politics. And the British basically consider him to and others he isn't the only one but he's the, the most successful one of the most successful ones as if you like this independent local force who is highly popular amongst his constituents and if my memory serves me right he beats he beats Theodotu in one of the elections um, and he does a lot of very important work in bringing about changes and infrastructure changes and other types of development in his for his constituents. What was the spectrum of opinion within Cyprus regarding Enosis? How did Armenian, Maronite, Catholic and Muslim Cypriots view Enosis? Well, 
generally speaking, Armenians, um, uh, 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 Maronites, um, Turkish Cypriots, Muslim Cypriots, if you like, were were opposed to Enosis. They they saw it as a threat. They were they were demographically speaking in the minority. Turkish Cypriots uh, numbered around twenty percent, um, and they always opposed the idea of Enosis. They always saw it as a threat to their um, even to their very existence in the island. Uh, and the Armenians, Maronites, other minorities took the took the exact same view, um, and consistently stated in petitions to the government whenever Enosis was being hyped up by by certain Greek Cypriot nationalists, because of course the Greek Cypriots themselves were were never really united behind Enosis, and you know the book talks about the 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 class. Uh, dimensions of this as well but they these other groups they were always opposed what is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of greek nationalism so on the question of greek nationalism the 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 book basically says that not everybody who was who may have considered themselves greek uh, uh, danced with one tune to to enosis and there's basically a transition going on in Cypriot society across, you know, the first decades of British rule and well into the 20th century, uh, which is really a, a more top-down type of transition in which the educated cl- classes are basically saying that Orthodox Christians are Greek and belong to the Greek world. And, it, and this comes into, I suppose, conflict with the identity that had been dominant during the Ottoman period, which was Romeosini, or the idea that Orthodox Christians are, are Romans, um, uh, Romni, basically from the Byzantine tradition. Um, and in some, you know, in the early period, there is a, t- a, a tension here, even within the church in Cyprus, which is, of course, quite dominant. Um, on on some levels, you know, that this is an alien idea, that nationalism is an alien concept to our religion. Uh, But eventually, by the First World War, there there is a sort of accommodation happening, whereby the church, I think, feels that, well, this is the only way that we can oppose the British. Um, And you know, through Enosis and through cultivating Greek nationalism. Um, but it takes it's a, it takes a long time for this to filter down through the middle classes and through the lower and eventually to the lower classes. And this is a process that is ongoing during certainly during this period. How was Cyprus's geopolitical importance evaluated? before, during, and after World War One, How did the strategic value of Cyprus in World War One impact the course of the war? Okay, so they, these are interesting questions. Um, before, bef- you know, as the, when World War One begins, there is a general consensus amongst the British uh, that Cyprus was um, an inconsequential possession and that its only real importance 
lie lay in the fact that it could be given up for something better, for some something more advantageous. Um, there was, for example, the, a proposal to cede Cyprus to Greece even before the war started in exchange for control um, and using a base, a naval base in the Greek island, Greek island of Cephalonia, which is one of the Ionian islands. That didn't materialize, but the but the um, the importance of this is that Cyprus remained even when the war started, uh, uh, you know, as a as a as a pawn really to be given up. Uh, there were hardly any troops in the in the island. Um, there there would never have been any attempt to maintain the island, it, um, you know, to take forces there to defend it if it were attacked. Um, during the war, Cyprus. Of course, of course, the war was around Cyprus. So the real importance for Cyprus, uh, the real importance of Cyprus, sorry, was to basically not leak information to the enemy um, because of its connections in particular and uh, to Egypt. Now, what they did not know at the time was that what was going on in the war itself in Egypt, in Palestine, but also the the you know what was going on in a limited way in Cyprus. Uh, you know, for instance, the Arme the base that was training the Armenians or or, or whatnot. What they didn't realize is that at, at one point during the war, a group of Turkish Cypriots stole a, a small vessel, went over to Anatolia, and basically spilled all of the these secrets. And this is corroborated by the fact that. They we they then flew airplanes over Cyprus and took photographs of the military installations. However, the role of Cyprus during the war was, I would say, relatively limited. After the war, when the British begin to re to to consider the question of whether they should keep it or not, um, basically they those who are coming up with the different reports, they've already made up their minds. They, they already have a position. We don't want to give Cyprus up. Um, and they begin their, their, their emphasis is on the potential future uh, strategic value of Cyprus rather than the value that they can turn back to and say, well, look, it was a critical air base or it was a critical naval base or whatever. It, it was neither of those during the war. So, so they're basically talking about potential strategic value. So based on that potential strategic value, they make a decision to keep Cyprus. Now, that potential, <coughs> that potential strategic value does not materialize post-war or even into the <coughs> into you know later parts of the interwar period. They don't develop Cyprus as an air base, they don't develop Cyprus as a naval base. Um, and they do revisit the question in the mid-30s again, um, but ultimately they they decide on the eve of World War II to sign a to, to actually sign a treaty with Italy, trying to keep Italy, trying to appease Italy. They didn't just appease Germany, they appeased Italy by signing this deal. And as part of this deal, they said, well, we won't develop Cyprus into a, a base without Italian consent which is an extraordinary um 
thing to agree to when Cyprus was part of the British Empire. Can you tell us about Archbishop Kirillos II and Archbishop Kirillos III? What yes. roles did they play in Cypriot history during the period of time that you chronicle? Yeah, so they are very important figures from around 1900. Uh, one of them dies in during the war and then the other one takes over and he dies in the early 30s. Um, now, from 1900, there is what is known as a schism in the Church of Cyprus after the death of the Archbishop uh, Sophronius. Now, Sophronius, I've written quite a bit about. Sophronius was Archbishop under the Ottomans and under the British, and he had a position it, basically, which was that the, the church, in order to maintain its authority, needed to cooperate with the imperial power to maintain its authority. But the British didn't want to do that. But he never abandoned, essentially, he never really abandoned that view. And he was never a champion of Enosis. However, the, the two who vied to replace him uh, who ended up being Girilos the second and Girilos the third? Girilos the second was was the more nationalistic, firebrand. Girilos the third adapted Sophronius's position into what we might call a, a position of soft enosis. Basically, um, this being well, the British will give us enosis, and we just need to hold tight and, you know, be good. And eventually he sort of comes to uh, somewhat change that position, modify it, I suppose. But the first one, Girilos II, he eventually becomes archbishop towards the end of that first decade of the 20th century because the schism lasts for most of that decade. He doesn't um, serve as archbishop for very long because he dies in 1916, I think. And then Girilos III takes over. Um, and he... He does. Um, he goes to London on several occasions after the war, but he fails to convince the British to give Cyprus to Greece, um, because by that point in time, the British have decided, well, we don't want to give Cyprus up, and they um, cite those, you know, strategic concerns and the potential of Cyprus to have a strategic role in, um, you know, Britain's interests in this part of the world. Um, yeah, so Girilos basically, to some extent, is, is less ambitious and less active than his predecessor. Um, and there is a greater role for the politicians under uh, his tenure as archbishop. Um, but both of them ultimately, you know, don't end up succeeding. What was the Cypriot mule corps? Can you explain its importance? So, yeah, the Cypriot Mule Corps um, is the subject of my second book and features here in this book as one of the chapters. Basically, when the, <clears throat> when the British and French had to abandon, I suppose, their Gallipoli campaign, uh, this coincided 
with Venizelos in Greece establishing his second government in Salonika, and the British and French forces went there and established the Macedonian front. Macedonia is a hilly, mountainous terrain, and they immediately realized that they needed mules to transport goods and other uh, items, as and, and indeed wounded, um, to and from the front. Somebody there knew that Cyprus had mules and that um, the, the, the mules in Cyprus were of a particular type that was uh, conducive for, 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 for these purposes. And then very quickly they realized, oh, well, we're going to need people to, you know, handle the mules. Originally they, they recruited some Macedonians, but then Venizelos, I think, was, a, was like, well, no, we, 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 I'll want them for, you know, my forces. So, so that was quickly abandoned. And then they, they hit on the idea of recruiting from Cyprus. So in order for this to happen, the High Commissioner of Cyprus at the time, Sir John Clawson, suspended or banned the emigration of Cypriot men of military age because they were beginning to leave to go to various uh, countries beyond the usual countries of Egypt and other neighbouring countries like Egypt. Um, they were going to Western Europe, North and South America, but once this was turned off, they were they were basically pushed into enlisting into the Cypriot Mule Corps. They were paid a very good salary of uh, over three pounds a month. Some of them also were able to serve in other capacities, which meant more money. Some were foremen, some were interpreters. Others had specialty sort of jobs, but the, most of them served as muleteers, and basically they were attached to different units of the British Army. Mostly they served in Macedonia, although some of them had to follow their units to Egypt. Uh, after the war, they also served as part of the British Army of Occupation of Constantinople or Istanbul. The incentives for the Cypriots, who were primarily, you know, Almost 60% of those who served were from rural areas, from small villages of less than 900. You know, the incentive was the, the wage. And there was a scheme also whereby the British would take a portion of their salary to give to their dependents back in Cyprus. Their contribution was very substantial. I mean, over 20% of the Cypriot male population of military age served. You know, some almost 12,000 served in the Cypriot Mule Corps. Um, and also, I mean, it goes without saying, I suppose, that although they were promised that they would not be in harm's way, many of them were wounded um, and many of them also died as well. And this has consequences for after the war as well. Uh, but the, the, the Cypriot Mule Corps has been, was a very important event in Cypriot history. So many men left the island during that time, yet it was suppressed from the historical consciousness because, well, it doesn't, it doesn't quite gel right for the nationalists to draw attention to this overwhelming service. When on the other hand, you're calling for the British to leave the island and to give it to Greece. Because very few, by comparison, served in the Greek forces during this period or even after the war from Cyprus.
Can you tell us about Sir John Clausen? Can you mm -hmm. describe his historical importance and his legacy in Cypriot history? So Sir John Clausen was the High Commissioner of Cyprus for most of the war. He had prior to this served in Malta and he had also served in the colonial office. He was appointed High Commissioner at a time when the previous High Commissioner, Hamilton Gould Adams, uh, who's the subject of another article that I've published, he was <clears throat> basically, I think fair to say, removed from his role because he was considered to be uh, not, not suitable anymore and he was appointed Governor of Queensland and Sir John Clawson replaced him. Now, Clawson was a very practical, level-headed High Commissioner. He tried to, uh, on the one hand, do as much as he could for the war effort without um, rocking, I suppose, the boat in Cyprus. His, his main focus was to not antagonise the Cypriots. Um, and like I said, he, you know, he, he was the one who was instrumental in the successful recruitment of Cypriots into the Cypriot Mule Corps, for example. Um, he died in office uh, towards the end of 1918. Um, he is not very much, I mean, very few of the high commissioners and governors of Cyprus are, are remembered by, by the Cypriots because, you know, for them, they're British and they don't want to remember them. Um, but a lot of them did a lot of uh, important, uh, you know, things in the, in the country, in, particularly around infrastructure, particularly also in investing in public health um, and other uh, areas as well. Can you tell us about Sir Malcolm Stevenson? Why is he notable? So he replaces Sir John Clawson as High Commissioner. Initially, uh, the appointment is a sort of, uh, you know, um, acting in the role, uh, but then he is eventually appointed to a full term, which which in, which means also that he's one of the more he's one of the longer serving high commissioners, um, and it, this goes into when Cyprus becomes a crown colony as well. He 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 has a different, I suppose, legacy than Clausen, um, because for some Cypriots who know, I suppose, a little bit about their history, although it's completely one-sided Stevenson is is a little bit of the a little bit uh of the bogeyman because he is considered one of the people who prevented enosis from occurring after the first world war and he is accused by some on the Greek Greek Cypriot side of the literature for antagonizing Greek Cypriot politicians and so my book actually not that it's, you know, in any way pro-empire, certainly not. But what it does try to do is give context to his actions and also um, point out that it was also the Greek Cypriots who refused to engage in the political process and removed themselves from representative inst institutions at a time when uh, probably, you know, they shouldn't have done that. And um, basically, you know, blaming Stevenson only, so, uh, there is an element of him also being responsible as well. 
Um, however, blaming him entirely is is only is not really the full picture. What is your book's contribution to the historiography of the British Empire and Commonwealth? How does your book advance our understanding of British imperial history? So the book advan advances British imperial history during and immediately after the war by showing the experiences of colonial of a colonial society, um, and this is this hasn't been uh, this hasn't been the focus of much of the imperial history to to bring together. World War One and British imperial history, and really look at the different sections of colonial societies and how they responded to the war and and the post-war period. Uh, so that is primarily my, you know, the main contribution, as well as you know more broadly how the British went about um, maintaining and consolidating their empire after the war, certainly in this part of the world in which their interests were increasing because, of course, they take up mandates for Palestine, mandates for Jordan, mandates for Mesopotamia, what becomes Iraq. So, so they are really on the ascendancy here. Um, and, and, and Cyprus needs to be part of that story as well. Can you tell us about the dynamics of intercommunal relations in Cyprus between religious groups and between refugee communities during and after World War I? So yes, this is a very interesting question. I mean, there's a lot of debates around the question of the relations between particularly Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots. And again, I, I you know, I think by taking the approach that I did in the book to look at the different sections of society, I think it's pretty obvious that we can see that there isn't one exact answer for for for, for this. I mean, Generally speaking, the relationships were good. However, if we're looking at the more educated elites, there, there is clearly tensions and potential there for conflict. At the lower levels, that's less so. However, um, there are also, as a result of uh, also the war, there are certain tensions at certain times that potentially could spill into um, violence, um, not, not in rural areas, in, in urban areas. Um, so this is where we see we are seeing, I suppose, um, on the one hand, some movement from rural to urban, and there the, the, the process that they've undergone for to, you know, to be, I suppose, radicalized. Um, however, Generally speaking, although there is the, the British fear the potential for for conflict, their, their their policy of trying to keep the two the the main two groups apart, which has negative consequences, also on the other hand prevents there being any serious clashes as well. If 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 that is uh, threatened. Can you tell us about Cypriot's involvement in the Greco-Turkish War of 1919 to 1922? Yeah, so this is also the subject of another article that I published in Journal of Modern Greek Studies in which I show that there was very, very limited by comparison to their, the, the Cypriot involvement in the British forces during the Great War. There was very limited involvement of Cypriots in 
the Greek armed forces, both during and after the war. Mostly we are talking about Cypriots who were either in Greece at the time or, or, or in the Ottoman Empire, you know, and were, you know, um, either volunteered or were forced into either the Greek or the Ottoman armies. Um, I also discovered that uh, a number of Cypriots, uh, Greek Cypriots, who were um, in Egypt um, and sometimes um, also in Greece, were forced into serving in the, for the Greek forces and even instances of Cypriots being kidnapped in Egypt. Uh, and that is the subject of that, of that article. So I think we need to understand the context here um, and the, the statistics really that very few by comparison served in the Greek and Ottoman forces either during or after World War I. Um, Can you tell us about the democratic deficit in Cyprus in the early 1920s? Sure. So what I mean by this is, I mean, most colonial societies by the very nature of being colonized and subject to imperial control have a democratic deficit. However, in many cases, they still have a constitution, they still have representation. Uh, in the case of Cyprus, they have a constitution and they have representation. However, what happens after World War I is that because the British reject the, the demands of the nationalists for enosis, they decide to withdraw themselves from the constitutional process and representative institutions. And this is the start, even though they come back to it later on, nevertheless, this is the start of a, a, a radical, you know, a radicalization of a certain number of Greek Cypriots into this idea that in order for us to succeed, succeed and bring about enosis, we have to uh, not only not cooperate with the British, but eventually they go down the line of violence. And this isn't something that just begins in the 1950s. This goes back to this period and, and specifically goes back to 1929. However, that what, what gets formed, the, a political party that gets formed in 1929, which, has, um, which is a secret party, essentially, and, and arms itself, it originates during this earlier period. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, yes. can you tell us about what you've been working on since completing this book? Where did your attention go since this has been behind you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the, what I immediately turned my attention to, if we're talking about connecting it to this book, was a, a small book on the assassination of Antonio Striandafilidis. Nobody had written about this. There were files that were released by the British um, in recent years, uh, known as the migrated files, uh, the Foreign Commonwealth files, FCO files, which had uh, documents on the subject. And I decided to write a book about, you know, the assassination, uh, which was published a year after, after this book that we've been talking about came out. So that was my uh, 
immediate research after that. And the other, I suppose, research uh, was on migration um, because, firstly, I wanted to return to uh, a, an important theme of Cypriot history that had been very largely either neglected or, in this case, you know, there is this diaspora type of history which glorifies the migrants um, but I wanted to talk about the hardships as well and the difficulties as well as um, looking at it also from the point of view of the receiving country too. So I've done a lot of work on uh, migration to the UK and to Australia, and this is what I'm also still finishing um, insofar as I can finish something as because probably there is more work that I'd like to do in the future. But for the moment, I'm working on a book on Cypriot migration to Australia. That sounds amazing. It sounds absolutely spectacular. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books in History channel on the New Books Network podcast. Today, it has been my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Andrikos Varnava, we have been discussing his newly published book, British Cyprus and the Long Great War, 1914 to 1925, Empire, Loyalties and Democratic Deficit, published in New York by Routledge Publishers, 2020. Professor Andrikos Varnava is Professor of British Imperial and Colonial History in the College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences, at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. Thank you for having me.